All right, John chapter 7. So Jesus is in Jerusalem for the festival of tabernacles. For the first part of this festival, remember, he was in secret. That's how he went. We don't know what that means. Then on day four, he begins to teach in the temple courts, probably that bottom square there. That's where uh, Jewish women were allowed to go. So men and women were in that court, and he was teaching publicly. We don't know what he said, but we know it stirred up a lot of different reaction, a lot of response from the crowd. And we closed last week with this really weird kind of exchange. The Pharisees are their nightmare scenarios that people begin to follow Jesus as the Messiah. The crowds, there seems to be some murmuring is the word, some murmuring that Jesus may be the Messiah. It's not full out belief. So the Pharisees send some of their guards to arrest Jesus to shut all that down. John tells us that it's not, quote, his hour, and so Jesus can't be touched. They can't, uh, they can't seize him. And we, Again, we don't know on the ground what does that look like. How were they prevented from grabbing Jesus? But from John's perspective, it's because it's not time yet. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, these kairos moments, the, the right time, the opportune time, and this wasn't it. The Father has decided when Jesus is going to die, and it's not now. And so these crowds and these guards are unable to arrest Jesus, and then the scene just kind of fizzles out. And we'll pick up today in verse 37. It's four days later. So there's a four-day gap between verse 36 and verse 47. We don't know what happens in between. But this is now the last day, the eighth day of this festival of tabernacles. So on the last and greatest day of the festival, day eight, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his word, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said he's the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So uh, some more background on the festival of tabernacles. This is not in the Old Testament, but it's a very old tradition. During the festival of tabernacles, the first seven days, uh, the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam. You'll see a picture of it there. Some archaeologists discovered this pool in 2004, so uh, it's what the, the, these um, priests would walk down there once a day, they'd take a pitcher of water, they'd bring it back to the altar, and they'd pour it out. And that was a big deal. There was a procession, kind of a parade-type deal while they were doing that. They did that for seven days, and on the eighth day, nothing. No water ceremony, and that water had lots of different meanings and symbolisms, brought lots of different things to mind. Uh, going back to the time in the wilderness where God provided water for the Israelites for 40 days. Um, they just come off a harvest, so thanking God for the rain, which allowed them to produce this harvest. That's what tabernacles you were celebrating at the end of harvest. It was the end of the dry season, so you're praying for rain. Also looking forward in the future to when God makes everything right. And it's a picture from Ezekiel 47 of a river flowing from a temple. So there's all kinds of water imagery associated with this Feast of Tabernacles in addition to this ceremony that was performed every day for seven days. And so uh, in the midst of that, on day eight, there's no water ceremony, and Jesus stands up and he says, everyone who's thirsty, come to me and, you'll, and you can drink. If you believe in me, then as the scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from within you or from your belly. 
That's not a, a quote from the Old Testament. That, that phrase that is not verbatim found anywhere in the Old Testament. But in Zechariah 14, which is referring to the Festival of Tabernacles, which is our setting here, there's Zechariah is looking forward to the time when God would make everything right. And he says, from Jerusalem will flow these rivers of, of water or rivers of living waters. It's the only time in the Old Testament that phrase living waters is used. And so I think that's what Jesus was referring to was that Zechariah 14, 8 passage. And, and you know that because of Jesus' life and death and his resurrection and then his ascension into heaven, he instituted a new covenant, a new way for people to relate to God. Old covenant, God, quote, lived in Jerusalem. He lived in the temple. If you wanted to meet God, then you packed up your stuff and you went to Jerusalem and you spent time at the temple. That, that slide that you saw, that first one, that's where you would go. And particularly during these three weeks of the year when there was a festival, one of which was tabernacles. And that was the primary way you would meet God as you would go to this temple. And if you were a woman, you could, a Jewish woman, you could go to that court of women. And if you were a Jewish man, you could go one step further into the, the, the court of the men. If you were a priest, you could go one step further inside. And if you were the high priest, you could go one step further into the most holy place, but only one time a year. Under the new covenant, all of that's been done away with. What we read in 1 Corinthians is that collectively, we're the temple of God now. He lives, quote, with us. And then individually, he lives within us. We're each temples of the Holy Spirit. So I think with Old Covenant eyes, Zechariah is looking forward, and the only context and frame of reference he has, he's saying there's a temple in Jerusalem, and a river of water is going to be flowing, living water is going to be flowing from there. And Jesus, with New Covenant eyes, realizes it's not a building anymore, it's a people. And so from out of you, whoever believes in me, these rivers of living water will flow. And then John says, hold on though, this is not for the people who first heard Jesus talk. This initial audience 2,000 years ago, this wasn't for them because Jesus had not yet been glorified. He'd not been crucified yet. He'd not been resurrected. He'd not ascended into heaven. So those guys that Jesus was initially talking to who heard that first invitation, they're still under the old covenant. And under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit doesn't take up residence in anyone's heart. If you read through the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's active but uh, more rare, and he comes on people. It's on, it sounds like you're putting on a jacket almost. The Holy Spirit comes on people and enables them to do certain things, and then in, they kind of take the jacket off. The Holy Spirit seems to move to somebody else, and that's not true under the New Covenant where the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the, lives, the, the life of everyone who, who follows Jesus. And so what John is saying is not time for that yet because they're still under the Old Covenant. Once Jesus has been resurrected and ascended into heaven, well, that's, that's when this promise will become reality, and that's the covenant that we live under. And so this causes even more uproar among the people. There continues to be confusion. There were uh, several figures who were associated with God making things right uh, in the world. One was Elijah, if you remember. He never died. He ascended into heaven, kind of whatever that means. And then you have Moses, he said, after me is going to come another prophet with a capital P. Listen to him. The, the Messiah, the, this David-like warrior king who would make everything right, who would lead the people in battle against their en enemies and kind of put Israel back on top in the food chain of nations. It's kind of like us with Revelation. We don't really know what's going to happen. It's kind of confusing. 
That's how they were with all of these different figures. They didn't really know. Is it one guy? Is it two guys? Is it three guys? What's going to be the sequence? When are they coming? And so because of all Jesus has said and done, some guys are going, he's got to be one of them. He's the prophet. He's the Messiah. And then someone else is saying, but we know the Messiah is going to come from, from Bethlehem. That's Micah 5.2. We know the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. And we know Jesus was born in, or was raised at least, in Nazareth, in Galilee. It's a long way away from Bethlehem. So he can't be the Messiah. And we think at that point, we're like, we know he was born in Bethlehem. They don't know this. And that seems like an easy thing for Jesus to clear up. And he just lets it go. But if they're not listening to anything that he's saying... If they're not believing any of the miracles that he's working, are they really going to believe him if he says, well, actually, I was born in Bethlehem. He doesn't have a birth certificate. There's no document from the Bethlehem County Department of Health that says when he was born. There are no witnesses. Whoever was a witness, they're gone. He's not going to find those shepherds. They're probably dead. His dad's dead. The wise men are either dead or gone. There's there's no way for him to confirm that. And even if he could try, they've already, many of them have already made up their mind about him anyway. And so you have these ones who are going, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the prophet, one of these end time figures. And other people are going, it can't be him because he's from Galilee. Jesus doesn't say anything. And then you still have this group that wants to arrest him, but they can't because it's not yet his hour. Again, whatever that means on the ground, they're prevented by the father from touching the son at this point. So that's what's happening publicly And this next little section is happening in a private room amongst the religious leaders. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? Remember, they'd sent these guys to arrest Jesus four days earlier. So now they come back empty-handed. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or have any of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who'd gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So here you see the the real motivation and the character of the Pharisees, more clearly than we've seen it at all throughout John. So they're snobs. The soldiers come back, and they don't have Jesus, and they say, why? And they say, well, he's pretty amazing. Have you heard what he said? And they say, have any of the people who know anything about anything begun to follow him? The people in this room, we're the experts. We're the ones who know. None of us are believing him. The only people who believe him are the stupid crowd. That's what they say. That's it. Nobody else believes in him. They're dismissing these guards and whatever sense they have of Jesus. They're not ready to follow him, but they're at least intrigued by what he's saying, and the religious leaders just shut him down out of hand. And then Nicodemus, who is one of their group, he is a Pharisee. Hold on. We should at least hear what he has to say. Our law says that's what we should do. And they shut him down. They just said nobody in this room believes in him, and then somebody in the room says, well, should we at least Hear him out. Remember Nicodemus, we saw him in John chapter 3. He approached Jesus at night, maybe because he was scared. And based on this interaction with these guys, you can see why. Maybe he's intimidated, but he approaches Jesus at night. And they have that 
conversation about what it means to be born again. And we don't know if Nicodemus put faith in Jesus or not. And at this point, we still don't know. Is he maybe what we would call a secret believer? Or is he still kind of in the process of trying to discern who Jesus is and whether he wants to follow him? We don't know at this point. But at a minimum, he, he, he says, let's, let's give him a chance. Our law says that we should do that. Again, I'm a, I don't know that he likes everybody in the room, but I imagine he likes a few of them. These are people that he works with, so you can imagine, think about yourself and your office environment. There's a couple of those people that you like, and he's, if he is beginning to think maybe Jesus is the Messiah, he probably is going to want them to at least give Jesus a chance so they could begin to see him as the Messiah, and maybe to go straight at them would be unhelpful, would not be very productive. So he asks a question, maybe he's trying to kind of work in through the back door, let's at, let's, let's at least listen to Jesus and give him a chance. And they shut him down. No prophets come from Galilee. That's not true. Jonah came from Galilee. They know that. They're just not interested. And it shows how closed-minded and hard-hearted they are towards Jesus. They're not willing to listen to any witness. They're not listening, willing to listen to any testimony that might contradict what they've already decided, which is Jesus needs to die. Even from somebody in their own group, they're not willing to hear it. And as we move forward next week looking at John 8, Jesus takes a very aggressive stance with the religious leaders. He's very harsh with them, and this is why. Because they've already decided he needs to die, and they're not willing to hear anything that may contradict uh, their predisposition towards him. Reading that, obviously, what jumps out, at least to me, and probably what jumped out to you, is Jesus' initial statement. There's an invitation and there's a promise. There's an invitation to all who are thirsty. Come to me if you're thirsty. Drink from me. All who are thirsty, you come to me and you drink. To be thirsty is to uh, acknowledge a need. There's a lack. I need hydration that I don't currently have. Uh, to, to come to Jesus is to acknowledge He's the source, and to drink is another word for receiving. And that word drink is, the sense of it is continual. It's not a one-time deal. It's a continuous action. So what Jesus is saying is, if you're spiritually thirsty, come to me and I'll meet that need. Reminds me of what he says in Matthew 11. If you come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. He could say, if you're weary and if you're burdened, come to me and I'll give you rest. Rest. If you're wearied and if you're burdened, you have a need. There's a lack. You need peace. You're lacking rest. And Jesus says he'll provide that. Makes sense that in the context of tabernacles with all of this emphasis on water that he would pick up on the imagery of thirst. But that's all it is. It's imagery that's speaking to a need. And it's very simple, our, our response. It's very easy to apply that to your own life. I have a need, then I acknowledge that need to Jesus, and I come to him, and I ask him to meet that need. Very simple. It's not easy for very many of us to do that on a regular basis. Jesus says in Matthew that unless we become like little children, we'll never enter the kingdom of God. And for most of us, that's not our posture towards God. We say, you're our father, and I'm a son, or I'm a daughter, but we don't relate to him in that way. All of you have been children, and think back. Some of you have children, but all of you have been children, and try to think about that dynamic between parent and child. And that word child is young child, not mature 20-something-year-old child. When you're a kid, or when you have kids, 
they ask you for everything all the time. All the time. That's what they do. They're unapologetic. They're unashamed. They don't care if you're busy. They don't care if you're broke. They don't care if you're tired. They're asking because they need something. That's what God's looking for from us. And we hear that and we think that's not very respectful. That seems very selfish. But it's the dynamic that God set up. One of the ways Jesus reveals God to us in the New Testament that we don't see in the Old Testament. Remember, we've got a new way of relating to God now. And one of those ways is as a father. You won't find that name attributed to God in the Old Testament. It's a New Testament reality. God is your father and you're his son or his daughter. And he says, that's how I want you to relate to me. Where we live, a mark of adulthood is independence. It's self-sufficiency. I can meet my own needs. God is not interested in any of that. He's not looking for people who are independent and self-sufficient. He's not looking for people who say, I've got this. Go take care of somebody who needs it more than me. We say that because we think we're... I guess being selfless, somebody else has a greater need than me. Absolutely somebody has a greater need than you. And it matters not. It's irrelevant. God is, his resources are infinite. He doesn't say, I'm going to meet Brad's need, and if I meet Brad's need, then I can't meet Les's. He can do both. Meeting Brad's need does not take away from Les at all. His resources are infinite. That means... They never are exhausted. Many of us don't, we, we, we minimize our need. I'm not really thirsty. I'll be fine. That's what we say. Uh, I, again, I guess it's, maybe there's some nobility in that on some level. It's false humility at best. And it's not noble because it's not what God wants. What he wants is for us to say, I'm thirsty. And I need some water. And you're the only one who can provide it. When you're thirsty, you don't have the resources internally to quench your thirst. You've got to get something from outside. And the same thing is true with your spiritual needs. Only Jesus can meet them. And I would push even farther than that and say in all of your needs, only Jesus can meet them. He wants you to bring those needs to him. Simple, but for some reason not easy. Hard for us to admit something is missing or lacking or wrong, which is what you're saying, I have a need. That means there's something essential missing from me. Not easy. Not easy to say I can't fix it. Not easy to say I can't figure it out. Not easy to say I need your help, even if we're asking help from God. But that's what he's looking for from us. You struggle with that? Is it hard for you to admit your need. If you live in America, the answer for most of us is yes. The second thing you see there is this promise. Rivers of life will flow from within your belly. Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. I'd encourage you to read it this week. It's a great little picture of what God's going to do at the end when he's making all things new. The last seven or eight chapters of Ezekiel are all these different snapshots. He's on this tour, Ezekiel is, with this angel who's showing him the future. Here are all the things that are going to be happening. And in Ezekiel 47, it's a picture of this restored temple. And from this temple, there's a river. And there's a couple of things about the river. One of the things is it increases as it gets farther from the temple. As it flows, it gets deeper. But there's no tributaries feeding it. Rivers don't work that way. 
But it begins as a trickle, and 500 yards later, it's ankle deep, and 500 yards later, it's knee deep, and 500 yards later, it's waist deep, and 500 yards later, it's too deep to swim across. It's a this supernatural river that increases in depth as it flows. And then everywhere this river goes, I think it's verse 6, says there'll be life. It flows south from the temple to the Dead Sea, and it flows through, maybe not, maybe desert's too strong a word, but it's a dry and arid region and Ezekiel sees trees on either side of this river and he says the trees produce fruit every month which no tree does that and the leaves of these trees are for the healings of the healing of the nations and then this river hits the Dead Sea and there's nothing alive in the Dead Sea because it's so salty but this river hits the Dead Sea and according to Ezekiel the word he uses is heals this river heals the water of the Dead Sea and there's so many fish that fishermen come and they begin to fish the Dead Sea because it's teeming with life because everywhere this river goes, there's life. That's a cosmic picture. But I think we can apply that to ourselves in miniature. The temple, remember, New Covenant is us, collectively and individually. There's a cosmic truth to that picture that is, is way bigger than any one person in the room or any congregation. But I do think there's some applicability for us as temples of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus saying, rivers will flow from within you and from within y'all. When I think of that increasing depth, it, 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 it encourages me and reminds me and challenges me. Am I increasing in depth as I go? If I've been walking with Jesus for one or five or ten or twenty years, do I know him better than I did when I started? And maybe even more challenging, do I know him better than I did last month? Have I quit growing? The river continues to increase in depth. Do I continue to increase in depth in my knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is? God invites us constantly to continue to take steps forward with him. Am I responding to that invitation or am I okay? Am I okay? I got what I needed. I'm not going to hell. I got what I needed. My family situation is set. I got what I needed. I know where I'm headed in my career. I got what I needed. I'm not sick right now. Is, or am I continuing to press forward in relationship with him? We've talked about the disciplines and they're available for all of us. Reading the Bible, prayer, worship, community silence, all of those things are available to us and those are ways that God meets us if we practice those things in faith. Are you growing in depth as you go? Do you bring life to the places where you go? We talked last week about the idea of being sent. Jesus was sent and he sends us and we talked about where we live and where we work and that God has sent us to those places. Do you see any of those places as dead seas? Or any of those places, dry lands. Well, now you're there. So they don't have to be. Not because there's anything great about you, but because in a sense, you carry the Holy Spirit with you everywhere you go. God is omnipresent. There's nowhere that he's not, but he's present in a special way through his people. He's chosen to work through us individually and collectively. And so where you go, life goes. Not because... Your life-giving, but because you carry the life-giving one within you. So that sea doesn't have to stay dead. And that region doesn't have to stay dry and arid. There can be, there can be life. There can be trees. 
because you're there and the Holy Spirit is actively working through you. Do you see yourself as that? When you think about yourself as a sent one, where you live and where you work, do you recognize that part of that mandate is to be a channel of grace? A, a source is a bad word because you're not the source of life, but you are a conduit of life. The source is the one who lives within you. Those places don't have to stay dead anymore because you're there. And that's probably why you're there. So they don't have to stay dead anymore. We have a couple of minutes. I want to take some time and pray. Bo's going to come back and lead us in a time of worship. We'll have ministry teams here up in the front. We'll pray with you about anything we have going on. If you came in with some sense of need and something that you wanted somebody to, to pray with you about, we certainly want to do that. And I also want to do, uh, I want you to think through two things. If you close your eyes, this is a, this isn't everybody. Do you know your need this morning? Are you consciously aware of the areas in your life where you're thirsty? And I'll say, if they're none, that's not good. If I say, where do you need Jesus, and your response is, I'm good, you're missing something. None of us have arrived. There's, all, there, there's always room to be conformed more fully into his image. We live in a fallen and broken world. There's always spaces and places and people who need the kingdom of God to come in a greater measure. Don't compare your sense of need to someone else's. That's irrelevant. What God is looking for from you is to approach him as a son or a daughter, as a child. He'll say to him, I'm thirsty. He'll say to him, I'm hungry. I'm confused. I'm sick. I'm angry. I'm depressed. This relationship is broken. I'm broke. I don't know what to do with my business. Do you know your area of need? Would you be willing this morning to acknowledge that before him and then to come to him as the need meter? If so, we're going to invite you to come forward and receive prayer. That coming forward, is, it can be an expression of faith, and for many of us, it's an expression of humility. It's a willingness to say publicly, I have a need, and I don't care if other people know. We're not going to announce what you say from the microphone. But for that, that act of coming forward can be a powerful catalyst for God working in our lives. The second thing I would say is, do you realize that rivers of living water are flowing from within your belly? Do you know that? In the places where you live and work, everywhere you go, because you're there, and the Holy Spirit lives within you, there are rivers of living water flowing from within you.
Some of you just, you need perspective. You need to be convinced of that. We would love to pray that God would settle that issue in your own heart. So Holy Spirit, would you come now and you minister to each one of us? I pray particularly for those who are willing to acknowledge need this morning, that you would meet their needs in ways that would bless them deeply and tremendously. It would allow them to recognize how much you love them and care for them. It would build a, a testimony of your faithfulness in their own hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand. Ministry teams, you guys can come forward. And Bo will dismiss us in a couple of minutes.